0: evening everyone, welcome to our Sutta Study Saturday Sutta Study Saturday Today we're looking at the Ratavinita Sutta Majima Nikaya number 24 This is a Sutta, or the topic of this Sutta is something that I keep coming back to course, and we, we keep coming back to, um, it's in our study of the Visuddhimagga. it's going to be in the Abhidhamma study, and I've given talks on this several times in, in different uh, contexts, The Rattu Sutta, the background of it is the Buddha was asking, some monks came from the native land, which is glossed as being the Buddha's homeland, so we'll go with that. And they came to see the Buddha and the Buddha asked them who is it in in the native land? Kapilavattu is, I guess, the idea. Nepal Have you ever been to Nepal? The last time we went, I've been to India now I guess three times And the third time, we finally made it to Kapiluvatu And I stood in the gate where the Bodhisatta Left the palace Whether it really was the gate there I think they found a plaque there An ancient plaque saying Kapiluvatu Sanghu Kapilavatu or Kapilavastu, Sangha. Sorry. So uh, saying that it was a monastery in the area made. I don't remember. There's there's argument over where Kapilavastu actually was. But uh, this area is kind of impressive, quite peaceful, out off the beaten path in Nepal, southern Nepal. Um, so there was a, a monastic community there Even when the Buddha was alive And the Buddha asked What monk in that area is it that everyone esteems? Uh, what what monk is there? Who Who would you say is the most esteemed monk? Having few wishes himself He talks to the monks on fewness of wishes its a big deal in Buddhism, the having few wishes, having few desires is it's an important practical uh, quality, right? Because ideally, an arahant has no desires, but this talks more about life, the life of not needing too much. You know even an Arahant, desires or no desires. they're always considering uh, their needs. And how they can be subaru, Someone who is not hard to accommodate Right, So they don't <coughs> concern themselves for this or that room They don't put other monks out They're considerate of others and their need for The other people's needs Right, Compassionate and so on Content himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on contentment Contentment of course is much more to the point Contentment is it's an essential quality of enlightenment And it's a really good word Because it describes true peace It's a quality of peace If you're ever wondering how to explain Buddhism And how to make it not sound like we're just a bunch of repressed uh, zombies Repressing our feelings and pretending that we don't want things This whole idea of detachment, non-attachment It sounds awful, it sounds like a zombie Or like someone who's just repressing their feelings But contentment, how do you describe it? You describe it as contentment Because the world is so discontent A good quality to remind ourselves About what we're aiming for It's very central to Buddhism, is contentment Secluded himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on seclusion Seclusion is another essential quality The Buddha is here outlining, this isn't even the core of the sutta But worth pausing and considering Seclusion is of two types And and very essential to Buddhist practice and just life in general Seclusion of body and seclusion of, of mind Seclusion of body, less important uh, In an ultimate sense But important practically Because you're going to cultivate good things Good deeds, good qualities If you're going to train yourself The training has to be done within And so secluding yourself bodily From the things that you desire From people who might distract you And so on From Facebook It's a good thing Practical, for practical purposes, but in ultimate sense, it's citta Weka that we're more concerned with. Citta viveka is um, secluding your mind from defilements, uh, getting your mind in a in a state where the defilements don't arise. So either through suppression of in in samatha practice, or as we prefer, through understanding and through clear comprehension, which prevents. Um, the opportunity it it, it uh, prevents the inclination for the arising of defilement, right? Because a defilement arises, a, a problem in the mind arises, a reaction arises based on misunderstanding, based on overestimation of an experience, like making it more than what it is. Papancha. If you experience things simply as they are. Which is what we try to do by reminding ourselves, seeing, seeing, and so on. And the defilements can't even arise. They ha- they have a trigger, right? You like something, you dislike something. It comes from the trigger, the uh, sankhara. Making things out to be good or bad, right, wrong, me, mine. Instead of just seeing. If something is just seeing, the Buddha said when seeing is just seeing, there's no attachment whatsoever, there's no identification whatsoever. So that's true seclusion, secluding the mind. Aloof from society himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on aloofness from society. Probably aloof is not the direct literal translation. It sounds kind of, you know, aloof is generally used as an insult, right? a mild insult he's very aloof So it's not necessarily an insult but it's a little bit it's not positive by any means um, but the point here is sort of separate from society like taking oneself out of society it's really Kaya Viveka it's, it's a seclusion but but here the point is more about society, right? Where a person, one, one type of person is just jumping in to engage in society, to talk to people, to chat, to gab, to make friends, to make connections. And another person is working internally. Like when the Buddha was, pass, was under the tree, um, dying, let's say. Or not dying, but the body was dying. His body was ready to give up. Um, there was one monk who, all the monks came and gathered around the Buddha and and mourned and lamented and tried to just be there when the Buddha passed away. But one monk didn't, and he was off on his own meditating. And they looked at him and they saw what's this monk doing? Hey, come! And they said, No, no, it's okay. And they dragged him to the Buddha and they they said to the Buddha, this monk was sitting off on his own doing nothing. And here you are about to pass away. We thought. Or maybe they just told the Buddha. I can't remember. And then the Buddha called him. Probably they didn't actually drag him. That would be very bad karma. Uh, but they called him, and he came. And uh, they asked the Buddha, asked him, you know, why were you off on your own? Why weren't you here like all the rest of the monks? And he said, Well, I thought yes, the Buddha is going to pass away soon, and here I am, not even enlightened yet. How can I? Even face the Buddha when I haven't done what needs to be done I thought now I should strive even harder while the Buddha is still alive To succeed in the task And the Buddha shamed all the other monks for their behavior And he said, if you you love me, if you care for me You should act like this monk Energetic himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on arousing energy Energy is interesting because it's not about just pushing yourself harder and harder and forcing yourself to do something <coughs> But energy is realizing that this is work that you have to do Enlightenment isn't just going to fall on your lap just because you're sitting cross-legged or whatever There's an energy and effort that needs to be put out Exert yourself Exert yourself again and again to not give up To try and try and not be lazy That's a real skill, something for us to work at. Attain to virtue himself, he talks to the bhikkhus on attainment of virtue, morality, ethics is what he's talking about here. Keeping precepts mainly, but uh, just having your behavior, having ethical behavior. And by ethical behavior in Buddhism, it's kind of interesting. It's not just not killing and not stealing. But ethical behavior in Buddhist, Buddhism means mindfulness in everything you do. When you eat, we consider it eating unethically if you chew and and, and uh, get uh, get not chew, if you get obsessed with the, the taste or the texture, enjoying the food, or if you're eating and do, and your mind is somewhere else. That's unethical eating. If you shower and your mind isn't with you, the scrubbing, it's unethical. Because there's delusion Because you, you, you're you allowing the arising Of likes and dislikes And so on It's very hard to be ethical Completely ethical in that sense You have to be an arahant But uh, All in all there's many layers to virtue Part of virtue I've talked about this before Part of virtue is just Not to let your gaze Wander over everything When you walk to be focused on where you're walking That's a monk's virtue To keep themselves focused even physically Attained to concentration himself He talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of concentration Focusing the mind on the object Focusing the mind on whatever object In in Satipatthana practice it can be anything It doesn't have to be focused on a single object Or even on the breath But when you focus on something This is where the clarity of mind comes from And this is how wisdom can arise Attained the wisdom is himself He talks to the bhikkhus on the attainment of wisdom Seeing the three characteristics Wisdom is really the highest It's Wisdom is the, the the thing to strive for. It's what it's all about. And that's important that he we always put it at the top because it's not just about calming the mind. It's not just about being a good person. It's about purifying the mind. but but purifying the mind means by wisdom, creating understanding the the, the uh, base of understanding that allows everything else to grow. You know, we often say morality or ethics is the base, but that's only because it's where you start. The base, the true base is wisdom, because based on wisdom can only come goodness. You know, if you know know what is good and what is bad, that's how goodness and, and how goodness is how goodness overcomes evil. Attained to deliverance, attained to knowledge and vision of deliverance Okay, so I'm not going to go into those He is one who advises, informs, instructs, urges, rouses and gladdens his companions in the holy life The Buddha is asking, who, who is there? Who is there in my hometown? And the monks answered, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Mantani Buddha is so esteemed Now it so happened that Sariputta, this is leading somewhere, Sariputta was sitting near the Buddha And he heard this Sariputta is the Buddha's chief disciple, number one in wisdom And yet he heard heard that there was this other monk who was very much esteemed in all ways Sounds like he's right up there in the top monks I was talking to a monk today about how this can lead to jealousy when other people praise you, we were talking about something that happened, and um, today I was at a katina ceremony in Toronto, and this monk was telling me about something that happened, um, where one monk appears to have gotten very, gotten somewhat jealous of another monk who they were both giving a talk, and the first monk uh, was very much. His words were very much appreciated, I guess And I didn't hear either of the talks So um, <laughs> But it's interesting listening to How monks can Or just like other people like, These were two teachers And uh, it's interesting to watch the dynamics But But um, but Sariputta doesn't get jealous I mean, It's the greatness of Sariputta, of course There's no way anybody could think he would ever get jealous What did he think? He thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could He said it's, it's, it's a gain for him that, that uh, people speak this way of him That actually sounds, if taken the wrong way, that could sound kind of jealous But it's not He says, maybe sometime or other we might meet him and have conversation with him Basically he's saying um, Good for him You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable He must be a really great person For people to say such things about him And uh, it's a great achievement You know, to not only be a great person But to have people recognize it Like that Like they really put him on a pedestal So the Buddha says, wouldn't it be great if I could meet with this monk someday? And it so happened that one time the Buddha, when the Buddha was in Savati, or I guess not even long after that, he went to Savati and somehow Poonamanta Niputta was there. And he went to the Buddha and the Buddha gave him instruction. And having heard his instruction, he went... Into a place called blind men's grove I don't think anybody has any idea where that is anymore But I guess it was near Savati Some forest Then somebody went to Sariputta and said Hey friend Sariputta Puna Mantani Buddha You always spoke so highly about I guess Sariputta From that point on was talking very highly about him He said Has just been taught by the Buddha And went off to uh, Blind man's grove for the day So Sariputta hurriedly He leapt up And took his sitting cloth Because monks are supposed to carry around a sitting cloth though most of us don't Unfortunately Some monks still do I saw a monk today I sat with a monk today who had one And I used to carry mine around but he wasn't using it, and uh, so I'm not really sure anymore about it. But when I'm in the forest, in the jungle, you need a sitting cloth because you have to sit, uh, you know, you have to sit on the floor. Forest, so it's actually uh, one of those things that you're required to have with you. Some monks take it seriously, and whenever they meet another monk, they'll put their sitting mat down and they'll bow down at the feet of the other monk, a senior monk. So I do this as I did this as well when I was in Sri Lanka. It's a nice tradition. Uh, so he leapt up and he followed after him, and I guess because he was going fairly quickly he caught up with him and saw his bald head, right? Yes, keeping his head in sight. He followed close behind him, keeping his head in sight. And Puna Mantaniputta entered into blind man's grove and sat down. And the Venerable Sariputta also entered the blind man's grove and sat down at another tree. And they entered into some kind of meditation. Probably they were experiencing Nibbana. They're both Arahants. And they're both um, agasavaka, They're both, I mean, Sariputta was of course number two to the Buddha. Um, but Punamantariputta was one of the 80 great disciples of the Buddha. I think uh, most noted for his ability to give Dhamma talks, something like that. Then in the evening they arose from their meditation and Sariputta went to put Punamantaniputta. The interesting thing is, Punamantaniputta didn't know it was Sariputta. He never met Sariputta, they never met. So Sariputta only knew it was him because the monks had told him he was going blind men's grove. But Punamantaniputta had no idea this was Sariputta. Of course he must have heard of Sariputta, the, the great chief disciple of the Buddha. And Sariputta asks Punamantaniputta some questions. And the gist of the questions is that he's asking why why does one practice Buddhism? He doesn't call it Buddhism. He says, under the Buddha, the Bhagava, the Blessed One. Um, so he asks first, are you Buddhist, basically? Yeah. But what he, he says literally is, uh, is the holy life lived under the Blessed One? And so, Are you a Buddhist? Do you follow the Buddha? And he said, yes, I live the holy life under the Buddha And then he says, why do you? Is it for, and then he lists seven things He says, is it, is it for sila visuddhi Purification of sila, ethics, morality, behavior Literally behavior. And he says no. Okay, is it for purification of mind? visuddhi No. Then is it for purification of view? Diti visuddhi? No. And he says, Is it for the sake of purification by overcoming doubt? No. Is it for purification by knowledge and vision? No Purification of knowledge and vision of the Wait, sorry, I missed one Purification by no- knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path No, then it is. is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of the path? No Of the practice no. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision itself that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One? No. So to understand, I'm sorry I just threw that at you, but to understand this you have to unpack it. These seven are called the seven Visuddhi. And they're elsewhere. They're found in at least one other place in the suttas. Um, and they make up the basis of the of the, uh, Visuddhi Magga. So, the Theravada tradition holds these seven purifications quite highly, and they're considered to be a roadmap to enlightenment. So, I'm not exactly sure the, the reason for asking this question, but I think it's kind of um, twofold, and it's based on the explanation that Buddha gives for de- denying each of these as being really the goal. Uh, but I think it's fairly obvious that they're not the goal But he's just giving, going to give Punamantani Buddha a chance to explain the path um, But the other thing I think is to point out The problem with a limited perspective on the path You know we always talk about how people practice for limited reasons Like like, it, like what I said, I had to think about when I said it Is that the wisdom is the highest And it's the highest in the sense but it shouldn't be our goal, right? It 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 should and it shouldn't. Like once you have wisdom, there's nothing more you need to do. But wisdom itself isn't a goal in itself. This isn't philosophy where we end up saying, "I now I know everything and good for me. That's good." You know, it's it it, it, it is that way. But the point is that once you know everything, or once you know everything you need to know, something else happens. That is really the goal. Why? Because Knowledge itself, what would be the point? If that was the end, if that was all it was about it doesn't sound very inspiring or even very useful The point is what wisdom can do for you So it's not actually the goal But it's easy to, I mean the point is that it's easy to fall short Either in your estimation of the path Like oh this is what it's all about And then get disappointed and discouraged you know why do I? Why should I bother if that's all it's about? Or by limiting your practice and saying I've made it to the end, I'm I've got sila You know I'm, I'm a I'm a good monk. Look at how great I am, keeping all these precepts and be content with that. And of course, we talk about that often. But these seven, uh, f- the first thing to do is to explain them. Um, you know, first to say that they're there's they're an, an order. They make up the path of progress. And the, what, what, uh, what was coined the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. But also to explain each of the seven, because it's not clear if you haven't studied the Visuddhimagga or, or uh, anything like that, or learned about these. So, purification of Sila is quite simple. That's where we start. You have to cultivate. Morality, ethics, else your mind will never settle down. If you're engaged in unethical activity, it's very hard to be mindful. It's a problem when, it's a problem with non Buddhists especially because we've never had a sense of ethics. Sure, Buddhists can be, people who are Buddhists from Booth can be very unethical as well. But, um, mostly not because mostly they know. Good and bad karma And if they do break precepts They break it grudgingly and, and worried about the consequences Whereas in a society or a culture Where there isn't talk about The five precepts at least uh, we, we go all out Killing, stealing, lying, cheating Drinking t- alcohol Taking drugs Never thinking it might have Repercussions Makes it hard to begin And it, it, it we need, you need patience. If you've never been a, an ethical person, it takes time to change your habits and your state of mind, your frame of mind. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is jit is uh, cittavisuddhi. Now cittavisuddhi is purification of mind, and it sounds like what? Wait, why isn't that enough? But um, some of you are, have heard this before. But purification of mind simply means. Uh, Here and now this mind state When you have a pure state of mind And you think okay so isn't that good Yes it's good it's not enough Because just because your mind is pure now Doesn't mean you're not going to get angry in the future right There are many ways to purify your mind right now If if you, you enter into a trance then your mind is pure And that's a lot of what this section talks about in the Visuddhimagga, in the book In that text uh, It talks about entering into trance states So there's all sorts of states that are so very pure But they're not nearly enough They're just the beginning They help you cultivate focus But in and of themselves they can't free you from defilement Because they don't teach you about the nature of reality When things you like, when you, uh, when you exit the trance The things you like still make you like Things you dislike still make you angry and upset But nonetheless it's important to to focus your mind It's important to be concentrated It's important that by the end of all this meditation practice Whether you enter into trances or not That you learn how to be concentrated and focused on reality On the nature of experience because the rest of this is all about wisdom, and it's wisdom based on on ordinary reality and ordinary experience. So number three is ditivisuddhi. Ditti means view, but it can also just mean vision, or the, you know, like um, your not vision exactly, but perspective. I like to use the word paradigm, and I know it's kind of a geeky word, but paradigm means the way of a way of. Uh, in in this sense it means a way of looking at the world you, Your sense of, of um, How you approach the world And so again we ordinarily approach the world From a point of view that Space-time exists This room exists My room exists Things and people and places They all exist And we think of the world based on that Impersonal reality That we have come out of that So the paradigm that we need as a meditator is the opposite That all of this comes out of us And this room is only a concept in my mind All the people and places and things that I know are just thoughts They're concepts that I give rise to Every time I see a certain thing I give rise to a certain concept And the mind does it very quickly But this is really what's happening Neither one is really wrong per se They're just different paradigms we need this latter paradigm, you need to be looking at the world from a point of view of experience That's why dittivisuddhi is first, even though right view comes at the very end of the, pa- of the practice This sort of right view means the proper way of looking Looking at um, your, your own self as being made up of physical and mental phenomena that arise and cease There's no soul, there's no me, no mine, no entities to anything. Things are just experiences, physical and mental, and they arise and cease. You have to begin by looking at the world from that point of view. Stop clinging to things. eh? Stop identifying and um, worrying about this is me, this is mine. If you see things as impersonal, you'll get very far in the world, in, in the practice. So you see things just as experiences. And they can't belong to anyone. And then they can't hurt you. They can't rattle your cage. Uh, and the next one is overcoming doubt. So uh, right view is a way of looking at the world. Overcoming doubt is... I'm going to put it in general terms. Overcoming doubt is... Through through seeing, through the vision that comes, right. It's like purification of view is uh, is finding the door and opening the door. Right. It's the act of opening the door. Purification by overcoming doubt is looking in the door and uh, seeing this is it. Seeing the treasure. Realizing you found the right door. Or uh, you know, just seeing what's on the other side of the door. Suppose you are wondering always what's on the other side of the doors and you open it. overcoming doubt because you now you have no doubt. Oh yes, now I know what's on the other side of the door. So from a practical perspective, this means understanding the way experience works. Seeing how good leads to good, bad leads to bad. How our experiences Our reactions to our experience Have consequences How there is a causal relationship And this is the whole idea of karma Where it comes from It comes from this one When you see this one Then you have a sense of karma If I do bad things Bad things are going to happen Because that's just how it, you know, that's just how Reality works I mean, That's how you see That's what you see happening You can't deny that this leads to this, that leads to that. You get a sense of cause and effect. Uh, f- when are we at? That's one, two, three, four. The fifth one is um, knowledge of what is the path and what is not the path. And so in general terms, this comes after you see what's behind the door, you, you figure out what you have to do with it. You see all this treasure and you say, i got to get this treasure out of here and back to my castle or something. Or maybe you see a, see a dragon on the other side and you, you have no doubt you have to kill it. So you realize, uh, you, you figure out what you have to do. And it, from a meditator perspective, it's once you see bad and good and a cause and effect, you start to get a sense of what you have to do about it. In the beginning, the, the meditator And this this part is dealt with in some detail It says in the beginning the meditator just wants to run away You see the dragon and you think Okay, I know the answer, close the door again, right? And you close the door, but mm, The dragon still goes and eats all the villagers The defilements still get out Uh, For a meditator this is often They try and find a happy place They feel very, they they enter into trance states and they feel, oh, this is better than actually facing the dragon. So they'll enter into happy states or they'll get caught up in good experiences. Because at this point, good experiences start to arise. For a beginner meditator, it might seem that this state will never, this stage will never come. When is something good actually going to happen? Yeah, but it does and when it does it's easy to get lost and think hey that's how, that's the way then i don't have to deal with all this bad stuff anymore <laughs> but that's not the way and uh, that's the problem is this this thinking it is the thinking the what is not the way is the way up to this point it's never been a problem i've never had to f- confront this and now you start to examine the good the bad and you start to see that even clinging to the good things is not the path. You finally, because you're stronger, though you're stronger, and that's why it leads to these good experiences. But because you're stronger, you're 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 able to finally accept that the path is to be to face your problems, to be mindful of them. Stop reacting. Learn to stop reacting. So then is the path of practice Once you realize I've got to slay the dragon Then you go about slaying that dragon Or For a meditator you go about changing your habits Polishing your lens so that you can see more clearly Polishing your mind so that you can understand things Which leads to knowledge and vision I, I think we're at number seven Number seven is knowledge and vision And um, it's, it's, it's vague the, the the title there is Suddenly Vague Knowledge and Vision of What Well they don't say what Because it's un, it's implicit That the knowledge and vision right? This one is the real thing Once you change your, your mind and, and cleanse your mind Once your mind becomes pure And, and strong enough uh, Something happens Your mind Let's go It it comes to this epiphany Everything Everything is crap Nothing is worth clinging to There's nothing I thought maybe I'd find something That I could cling to And that would make me happy Nothing And so then the mind My brother sent me a card today I'm not sure how I felt about it On Facebook I saw that he had Put my name on something on Facebook Uh, Or sent me something I don't know how it works exactly I get a notification And uh, It was said It was a birthday card And it said Dalai Lama's birthday party And it's him opening a box And saying Oh nothing Just what I always wanted That's how I felt about the card It was kind of I don't know Anyway why that made me think of that The idea of wanting nothing That's the point because You uh, you come to say that there's nothing worth wanting And then the mind lets go And that's when one experiences Nibbāna That's when there's pure cessation An experience of, of pure non-arising cessation No thoughts even It's like the mind said I want a break (laughs) I'm going on vacation Uh, It's freedom So that's the seven purifications And as you can see They're very much an ordered path They don't arise all at once Um, But one leads to the other And that's what Punamantani Buddha says When he says is it anything else? He says... It, Sariputta says something interesting. He says, well, if it's none of those seven things, then is it for any other reason that you practice under the Buddha's teaching? And he says, no. I says, what does this mean? And he says... Uh, I skipped a part, but it's not really that important. It's You can read it if you want the detailed exposition. But... Um, yeah, no, I should I should talk a little bit about it He says, so, so, what? So, I says, so what's it for? Sorry, I am going out of order He says, what's it for? He says, well, it's for the sake of final Nibbana without clinging Parinibbana Anupadisesa Nibbana Or something like that, right? Anupada nibbana, anupada Parinibbana So complete freedom through non-clinging, through non uh, arising, this total and utter emancipation from suffering, and then Sariputta Buddha asks, "Well, is any one of those seven things that what you talk about this anupada nibbana, anupada parinibbana?" I don't know. So well, what the, what the, what are you talking about? What what's the what is the meaning of this? And he's and Buddha Mantali Buddha explains. He says. Well, if if the Buddha had described any one of those seven things as being this idea of free and, and complete, complete freedom from suffering, let's say, let's put it simply, then uh, he would have been he would have been describing what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbāna without clinging. So each of these seven states is still don't free you from clinging. I mean, it's. I don't have to go into great detail. It's actually quite technical. I think not all that interesting for this audience or for you know, for for our um, general purposes. Not to not to speak poorly of the sutta. It's just let's try and simplify it here, right? And if you want the details, you can go and and read the sutta yourself. But he he simply says that they they're like relay chariots. As I explained it, each one of the seven leads to the next Like uh, if a king needs to get from Sabati to Varanasi, say Right, where is he saying? Sabati to Sa- Saketa Saketa is maybe where that's where the Buddha Anyway, Saketa, let's say Can us tell us where Saketa is? No So uh, from Sabat to Saketa, he couldn't get there just in one chariot, so but the king has this set up cleverly so because the horses get tired after a while. So he would take one chariot all the way as far as it would go, and right there there would be another chariot waiting for him. And then so immediately he'd get in the second and it's as though it was he never had to stop. Second chariot, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and it's like he's riding the horses all the way to Sabut to Seketa, which of course is impossible because the horses would die before they got there. So they had these thing about relay chariots, and so he said it's like that. You, you start with one, and you go; it takes you to the second one. Each of the, the Visudhis. This is a case of clear progression. It's one of the greatest ca- um, descriptions that uh, of of a progression. Right. All the uh, many of the other dhammas, it's vague about exactly what the progression is. But for these seven, and that's that's the great thing about them. I think that's a really important part of why they were used for the basis of the Visuddhimagga is because um, you know, they describe so well the progress that you don't have to have this. This sort of doubt about what am I doing here? Why am I where am I going? What's the where am I along the path and and what is the path like? You know, sometimes you come into a meditation center and you have just this vague notion that it's leading you somewhere good, or maybe a far away idea of becoming enlightened. Or maybe you just have limited goals of alleviating stress and so on and it's easy to get lost not having any idea of of uh, what the path is what is it that you're doing mm-hmm. so having a clear progression I think is, is, is useful now it can be problematic if you think too much about it and you start to wonder where am I on the path Right? if you're wondering where you are on the path you're not practicing and you're not on the path you've fallen into the forest You're in a ditch somewhere So get out of that ditch and practice again It's a big quandary of wondering Trying to to be sure that you're on the path And doubting about whether the path is right And so on Because as soon as you start to wonder about your results Try to assess your practice You stop practicing It's a bit of a dilemma That's why it's good to have a teacher Who can just reassure you You're doing fine, you're doing fine it's not that dire. You do, as you practice, gain a sense of reassurance. And so I think the point is not to take, not to become too obsessed with the results, which is very easy, especially in the beginning, um, but to have a healthy sense of um, the path of practice and the progression. So I think learning about these seven is useful. I think obsessing about them or thinking too much about them is, is harmful. Nonetheless, very useful to have a sense that there is a that this is leading somewhere and it's quite sort of a rational and easy to understand how it leads from A to Z. There's all these letters in between that get you there. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Um eventually they do if you want to read the sutta you can see they the Punamantadiputta um, asks who you are and he says, Sariputta, he says, oh, if I knew you were Sariputta, I wouldn't have gone on so long because, of course, Sariputta is number one in terms of wisdom. But they rejoiced in each other's wisdom. These two great beings, its a great, it was a great meeting, it's a great sort of story to think of these two monks meeting in the forest and sitting down to, to talk about what becomes the sort of the backbone of Theravada Buddhism I mean as far as a post-canonical description of the canon of, of the, the Buddhist teaching we now rely upon this meeting and what became of those seven purifications so that's the Dhamma for tonight Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.